One of the reasons that I love this church, you know, I've been here now for, it's been four and a half years now. I was at my last two churches for four years, and, and when it was time to go, it was time to go. I feel that here at, at the four and a half year mark, I feel like we haven't even begun to peak. I feel like there's still, like we're just barely getting our running legs beneath us. We are hitting our second wind, and I think that there's so much more for God to do through us and with us. And so one of the reasons, though, what I was saying is that I love this church is because it's like family, do we always agree with each other? Someone says yes. <laughs> they, they're young. They don't know. <laughs> we don't always agree with each other. We don't always get along with each other. There's issues sometimes. We've experienced all sorts of heartache. But one of the things that, that kind of, I think, keeps bringing us back together, and I've heard this so many times from so many people, this church is our family. This is our family. Why would we ever want to go anywhere else? We may go visit other places. (laughs) We may be gone for a couple of weeks, but we can never leave this church because this church is family. And and for me, I feel like this is family for me as well. There are pastors who at the four-year or five-year mark, they're like, I am getting out of here and I'm going somewhere else. But I feel like there aren't enough drama or issues for me to leave. (laughs) In the sense of when pastors leave, it's, you know, you guys have welcomed me, um, and I just, I'm in, I'm in love with being at this church, and I think it's just an amazing place. But more than that, a few months ago in September, I'm not sure if any of you knew, because I didn't really know until like midway through my sermon, that we had a guest, a, a man and his wife by the name of Dan Jackson. And, uh, is that his name? Yeah, Dan Jackson. He is the president of the North American Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So he is like my boss's 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 boss. So he is like the president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church for the entire North America. And he happened to be here because his son was running in a marathon at Disneyland either that day or the next day. And so his wife, they Googled and they said, well, this is the closest church, it seems, so we'll come here. Now, he said, hey, this is a really great church. Everything's awesome. Good job. You know, people are really, really friendly. But what else are you supposed to say, right? You're like, yeah, okay, thanks, you know. It's like when you guys say, you know, that was a really great sermon, Pastor. <laughs> what else are you going to say? But here's the, here's the important part. Um, last week we had another guest. His name is Ernie Furness. He is the ministerial secretary, which is like, he's like my, he was my pastor growing up, my mentor as a student, and now in a sense he's my supervisor, boss, and continues to be my mentor. He said, hey, by the way, I don't know if you knew, don't know if I told you, I ran into Dan Jackson a month ago, and he had nothing but praises to sing about the Orange Seventh-day Adventist Church. He said, I felt welcomed. There was a broad spectrum of of age, so it wasn't just people who are further along in age than more mature. He says, everything was great. He goes, but more, he's like, I felt at home, and I felt welcomed. So whatever you guys are doing, keep doing that, please. Not just because he was the president of the group, because I didn't even know it was him until midway through, and even then I was kind of like, why would he be here, you know? And um, not in a bad way, but just out of all the places, you know. So anyway, that, that's one of the reasons why I love this church. And so I just want to leave you with that, so that as you continue to be hospitable to our guests and to each other, just to remember we're a family. We're all in this together. And, and this is the glimpse that God is giving you of eternity.
These are the people you will be spending eternity with. So just, you know, get comfortable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just want to thank you that you have shaped our hearts in such a way that you are allowing us to receive your presence this morning. As we continue now to go through the word, as we just spend a few moments, Lord, I pray that you would give me the clarity of words and speech so that my brothers and sisters would be receptive to your message. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, the question I'm going to ask every week until the last week in December, how is your one-year Bible reading going? We have two more. We have two more Bibles that came in. If you, if you want to jump in, you can go ahead and jump in. It's, not, it's never too late to start reading the Bible. But one of the things I noticed about reading the Bible through in a year is this image that I had in my mind. Reading Scripture is a lot like a rose. When the rose is being born, I don't know what the word is, is it when it, when it buds? It's small. It's simple. There's nothing really to see. But over time, the flower begins to bloom. And the more that the flower begins to bloom, the more petals that are added, the bigger it gets, the more beautiful it gets. And what I realized this week as I was preparing for this sermon, but also as we're doing the, the weekly reading, is that the scripture is a lot like a blooming rose. You read it at first glance, and you're like, okay, yeah, I know what it says. You know, I read the words that are on the page. But the more time you spend on it, and I, and I know that not all of you have the luxury like I do to spend as much time as I want to reading scripture. It's part of my job, so I, I can do that. But if you have the time to just spend time and maybe read that reading twice throughout the day, maybe in the morning, maybe at lunchtime, and maybe in the evening, the more time that you spend with Scripture, it's like a rose that begins to bud and the different layers start to come out and the different aspects of the text come out. And the more time you spend in Scripture, the more you will get from it. The ancient rabbi said it was like a diamond when every time you came to the scripture, where depending where the light hit at one certain moment or another, it would reflect something different at different times. Another image, if, if you're a foodie and you like food, it's like an onion, and you keep peeling the layers of the onion away. You keep peeling the layers of scripture away until you see more and more of what scripture is saying. And I want to leave you with that image as we kind of go into the scripture now. And, and I want to show you kind of how that plays out when I'm working on the sermon. So, you know, we've been going through Romans, and we're going to go a few more weeks before we switch it up for a little bit. But I want to begin in chapter 7. And Paul is saying all kinds of things that sound really, really bad. On a cursory reading, if you started in the book of Romans chapter 7 and you started reading this, you would think that Paul is saying some pretty bad things. So he says things like this. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. That's negative. But now we are discharged from the law. So it's like, oh, I was doing something bad, but now we are discharged from the law. He says, we are slaves not under the old written code. Now, if you have no context, and if you haven't been following along for the past four months, and you read this, you're going to say, why does Paul hate the law so much? Why does he hate it? What is wrong with the law? Now, if you're just coming on and you're just reading this for the first time, what are you going to think? Well, there's something that is extremely negative and bad about the law. So Paul is saying these things. And if you're having the question of, well, does he hate the law? That's, that's what the people in the first century were saying to him as well. And so he has to defend, them, defend himself. And he says this, what then should we say? That the law is sin by no means. One Bible translator says it should say, God forbid 
as opposed to by no means. You see, Paul's not saying that the law is bad and that it is evil and that it is sinful. He's saying that's not at all what I am saying. But Paul had a deeper, deeper, more transformational message. Now, when we talk about the law, you can fall in one of maybe two or three different categories. So the first one, and we're going to talk about this and going to get back to the text. The first category you can fall in is what we call legalism. Not just us, but Christianity across the spectrum. If you're a legalist, you're a person, and, and this is what one commentator writes, to be a legalist means that you are under the law and you are in, in bondage to it. They imagine that their relationship to God depends on obedience to the law, and they are seeking both to be justified and to be sanctified. So I'm going to pause and break that down for you. A legalist is a person, let me give you this analogy. How many of you, you have to raise your hand, but how many of you have children or stepchildren or, or you know, been around children? Now, how many of you have your kids asked you for things? All the time, right? This morning. <laughs> now, they know how to ask you for things, correct? If, if your son or daughter wants something that they probably know you're going to say no to, don't they butter you up a little bit? Yeah, they clean the house before you get home. Uh, they make you a cake that may not taste very good, but it's the thought and the effort that counts. But what do kids do? They try to, in a sense, butter their parents up so that they have a better chance of getting what they want. What we would call that as adults is that's manipulation. So what a legalist does is they, they try to live a life in such a way where they say, if I'm good enough, God's going to have favor on me, God's going to love me, and he's going to do more for me. The problem is that we're all pretty wretched people. Paul will say that next week's sermon. <laughs> and it's hard to be good all the time, and yet God still has favor, and God still blesses you. So you see, a legalist is just trying to, to get God, in a sense, to bend to your will because you are being good. So a legalist is someone whose entire relationship to God is based on how well they can keep the Ten Commandments, how well they can keep the Old Testament laws of Moses, how, how well they can be good for, how, for as long period of time. And so that's what a legalist does. But what ends up happening with legalists, and, and I don't know where any of you fall, probably in neither of these. You'll probably fall in the best category. You'll see which one it is. <laughs> um, but what ends up happening is and then legalists begin to judge other people. Because I'm living this way, Brent, you must live this way too. And, and since this is how I understand things, you must too. And the problem is there's very little grace when it comes to legalists. So that's one, that, that's one, that's one category. You either fall into the legalism. Now, the opposite end of that is what the, what the what Bible theologians and scholars, it's a word we've never used before, antimonians. Basically, it's if, if, if legalists follow the law to the T, this group, the Antimonians, are saying, well, you know what, we don't need the law. The law is useless. It's bad. As a matter of fact, it's too restrictive. The reason we sin is because of the law. The law is bad. Let's do whatever we want to, whenever we want to. God's going to forgive us anyway. So you have these two polar opposites, neither of which are good. But then there's a third kind of group. And that group is what is called the law-fulfilling free people. They rejoice both in the freedom from the law. That's not in the Bible. By the way, I have notes in my Bible before you guys start thinking that the Bible. Right, someone was joking with me this morning saying like, you know, you got to be careful because people are going to think that you're reading from Scripture. No, I'll, I'll tell you when it's from Scripture. 
And thus saith the Lord. No. So, <clears throat> law-fulfilling free people is a group of people that rejoice in the freedom that they have from the law for justification and sanctification and in their freedom to fulfill it. So, in other words, the law doesn't justify you. That, again, church words, justification means to be set right before. It's like a legal term. So the, the analogy I like to use all the time, O.J. Simpson, we know he was guilty, but for whatever, we, we, we assume he was guilty, but for whatever reason, the, the jury found him not guilty. Now, he was forgiven of the charges, but did that make him a great person? Did that really make him innocent? No, he found another way to get in trouble years later. But according to the law and to the court, According to the laws of the United States, he was acquitted. He was declared not guilty. So when we use the word justification in a religious setting, what we're saying is that your sins, the, the sins that you have incurred, the debt that you have incurred from the sins, the Bible says that, that if you're a sinner, the wages of sin is death. But what, but what Paul is saying is like, listen, your justification, your forgiveness for those sins, it comes from Christ. If you try to live only by the law, if you try to attain it only by the law, it's just never going to happen. And it's not a negative thing. He's just saying, look, the law itself, by itself, it is powerless to save you. The law doesn't change your character or your life. Only Jesus can change your character or your life. Only Jesus can transform you. So the word justification simply means you are, it's this forensic legal term that says you are forgiven. It doesn't instantly change you into a great person. It doesn't instantly get rid of all of the bad habits you have. It just means that in the eyes of God, you are forgiven. Now, the word sanctification is another word that we only ever use in churches or in, or in Bible books. But sanctification now is the process of becoming a better, more... Uh, uh, <laughs> sanctification is becoming more like the image of God where the sins in your life begin to fall away. But even that we are powerless to do. Sure, we can put boundaries up and we can use guardrails in a sense in our spiritual lives to try to stay away from certain sins, and we do that. But left to ourselves and your own willpower, it will probably be nearly impossible for you to get rid of all the sin in your life. Actually, I'm going to say it is impossible. But the Bible tells us it's impossible for humans, but with God, all things are possible. So the justification is the work of God, and the sanctification is God working through you. The Bible says that God has begun a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion on the day when he returns. Sanctification is God continuing to pour himself into your life. So if you are a part of this law-fulfilling free people, you know that the law cannot save you, it doesn't necessarily change you because it's still external. Only Christ and God can save you. But you choose to live after the way of the words of Scripture because you know that if God, the creator of the universe, who sets all things in motions, hands this down to you and he says, this is the best way to live, we accept that because we want to live in harmony with the God of the universe. We accept what the Bible tells us because God has told us that he wants us to live the most abundant kind of life. Now, Jesus once said in John chapter 8, it's not up on the screen. The Bible says that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. It means that you are free. You are free from everything that held you back, everything that enslaved you. 
And in your freedom, you have the opportunity to choose how you will live your life. You will either choose to follow the way of Jesus and be a follower of Jesus, or you will choose your own way. In your freedom, you can either make decisions that will lead to more freedom. Not stealing leads to freedom. Not lying leads to freedom. What do they say? If you always tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. Some of you will get that in a few minutes. It took me a while the first time I heard it. It gives you more freedom when you tell the truth. When you don't steal, that leads to freedom. When you're not committing adultery, that leads to freedom. When you're not coveting what other people have, that leads to freedom because it allows you to just be able to enjoy your life. When you submit your life to Christ, that leads you to the freedom of having to make every decision and every detail of your life. So in your freedom, in the freeness that God has given you, you can choose to make decisions that will lead you to more freedom. Or you can choose to make decisions that will enslave you. Because you have that right. You have the freedom to choose. And sometimes we choose things that enslave us and lead us into slavery. Some of the things I have written down are addictions. Sometimes addictions, those are the worst, and they will enslave you for life. Substances, things, actions. Sometimes we're addicted to people. That instead of leading us to more freedom and a more abundant kind of life, instead robs us of the abundant life that Christ is giving us. And so, you can either be a legalist, and there's not much happiness there. You can be an antimonian or an anti-law person. This English writer wrote, he says, libertine, not a word we use. Or you can find a third way, which is somewhere in the middle, where you know that the law is powerless to save you, and thank God, because then we would all be destined to hell. If we had to do it on our own, we couldn't. But we also know that in our freedom, we get to choose because God is full of grace, love, and mercy. And in our freedom, we get to choose to be a follower of Jesus and do what Jesus calls us to do. And it's not just the Ten Commandments. Those are pretty simple, except for the Tenth one. That one's a little harder. But for most of the Ten Commandments, the first nine, those are pretty simple. We can have a checklist every day and start checking those off and see if we're living up to those. But what I encourage you to do is to read the book of Matthew and see how Jesus takes those Ten Commandments and he elaborates to where now it's no longer the external things that you do, but it's the motivation of your heart. Jesus says it's not what comes into a person's body that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of his heart. So Jesus is like, because what was happening in the first century is we had these people and they were called Pharisees and they were, like, they were like the pastors, you know, and they were just annoying. Not that we're annoying, but they were just annoying and, and they lived in such a way where they, they flaunted their religiousness. They would go and give their offering and they, and they would raise it from the very top and drop it in. And so that everybody can, they would drop coins. Maybe that's all they had back then, but so it would even be louder. They would, they would wear their clothes a certain way that showed that they were religious. They would pray certain prayers so that people would say, I, I don't pray like them, so I don't want to pray in public. They, would, they, would, they were living this external lie. And Jesus says, no, 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 that, that, everyone can do that. It's about what's happening inside your heart. So even if we were to choose to follow Jesus' interpretation of the Ten Commandments, we're in even bigger trouble because <laughs> it's harder 
But the truth is, is that Jesus says, look, when, when, when I am with you, I will, I will pour myself into you. I will make my home within your heart, and you will be able to have the overflow and the outflow of the goodness of God. To be a law-fulfilling free people is we live and we try the best that we can to follow the teachings of Scripture because we are thankful that God has forgiven our debt. We are thankful that God has forgiven our sins. And so when we live in such a way to show God that we love him, all we're really doing is saying thank you for what you've already done. Thank you for the gift of grace. But there's no more fear when you're thankful for the gift of grace. The Bible also tells us that where there is perfect love, there is no fear. When you are truly in a relationship with God or trying to be, because it's always very different for all of us, right? We don't really see God, so it's difficult. But when we are into, enter into a relationship with Christ, we know what the beginning of the fullness and the abundance of life really is. And, and that's what Paul's been talking about. Because there was people in the first century that were telling adults, okay, adult males, hey, now that you're converting to, this, to the Christianity, you need to be circumcised. And Paul's like, well, wait, 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 wait. I'm, I don't know if we have to do that. I don't know if we have to do that. Come on, let's be practical. Because then Paul says it's not about the external things. He takes what Jesus says. It's not about the external things. It's about the internal things. And, and Paul will talk about the circumcision of the heart. But it's there in Genesis too. It's about what is going on on the inside. It's what is the motivation for why you are doing what you are doing. It's very easy for us to put up a false front. As a matter of fact, we all do it. You all put up a false front. For those of you who are married, and I don't know any of, I know none of you have told me these stories, but I've been married, so I know this is true. How many of you who are married, or boyfriend and girlfriend, have been driving to church arguing with your family? I don't know what it was about, but you guys are arguing and blah, 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 and, all this stuff, but as soon as you cross that gate, wow, there's halos on your head. You get out of that car. Happy Sabbath, sister. Hey, pastor, you're looking. So happy to be here at church this beautiful Sabbath morning. It's raining. You switch that. We all do it because it's hard to be vulnerable. But the power of the gospel says you can be vulnerable. And, and this wasn't planned, but, I mean, Jen, this morning, um, you opened up to us in a way that I would never imagine anyone standing up here and opening up to us. And that's a gift of vulnerability. It almost made me want to get up and share what I'm, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> but it's, it's the vulnerability of saying, Father, I want to serve you to the best of my ability. And it's about God catching us before we fall and saying, I got you. I got you. Because it didn't cost God the life of his son on the cross to just etch you out of eternal life super easy. If God didn't give up on you on the cross, he's not going to give up on you because you're having a bad day. It was too costly for him to start erasing your names from the book of life. And so as law-fulfilling free people, it's almost like we have this safety net below us that when we sin, God says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. 
Paul earlier in Romans said that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the ultimatum, turn or burn. It's, I got you. I got you. It's God's patience and God's kindness that allows us to continue to turn back to him day after day. And Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said that you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of coveted covetousness. Paul says, look, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't know who I really am. So the best way for me to kind of explain this is that the law functions like, the, like a mirror. Every morning, most of us look in the mirror because we have to, because we've got to be presentable to the world. But what does a mirror do? Does a mirror lie? Some of them do. Some of them make you look a little bit wider than you are. <laughs> I know which ones those are, so I don't look at them. But what does a mirror do? It just reflects back to you who you are. It shows your flaws. It shows your wrinkles. It shows your pimples. It shows your stray hairs. It shows your nose hair and your ear hair and all the stuff you would rather not see. But it, it doesn't fix it. It just shows you who you are. And the law is exactly that mirror that shows you who you are. It shows you where you have fallen short. And it shows you your need of God's grace in your life. And when you know you have received God's grace, you don't just say, all right, I'm out of here, Lord. I'm going to go do the same thing. But rather the hope is that you say, thank you. And in order to honor and glorify God, you try to live your way in such a way, try to live your life in such a way that you reflect who Christ is to the world. That's what Christians should be. People who have been forgiven, living as forgiven people with every interaction that they encounter. Which means that maybe we stop honking as much when people make really bad moves in front of us. Which means we stop snapping at the people that we love. Which means that we start learning to forgive. Which means that we start learning to be patient. Which means that we seek to listen before we speak which means we learn to ask forgiveness. Because if we could live in such a way, people will want to follow the Christ that we believe in. And that encompasses all the laws. The laws were given to the people in Israel because God says you need to have a way to know how to interact with one another. So you see the the, the mirror or the law is just like a mirror. In in a sense, the law is like a photograph. How many of you have, um, I know this happens, how many of you you're out with your friends having dinner, or you're just hanging out, and then that night you see a picture of yourself on Facebook and you're tagged, and you're like, that is not a flattering picture of myself. Could you ask me before you post that picture? Well, I guess i got to lose 10 pounds. The law is like that picture. It shows you the, the, who you are, whether you're ugly or beautiful or in shape or not. It just shows you who you are. And so I would then include this next metaphor as we're kind of wrapping up. If the law is like a mirror that reflects back to you who you are, or like a photograph, then perhaps God is the Photoshop software that reshapes 
and cleans your blemishes to make you the best version of yourself. Because when I've been photoshopped, I could look at myself all day. (laughs) The other way, I'm like, whoa, I don't want to see that. But when those blemishes are covered and it's like a glamour shot, you're like, I'm pretty handsome. I have a quick story. Can I share this story? When I was at the last church, we had a directory. We had people come in and do a directory. And, you know, directories work in such a way where they take a picture of you, and the picture's free. They'll do the directories for you, but then they try to sell every one of you, like, a set of pictures. Well, I was single at the time, right? So I'm like, well, I don't need pictures. And the girl says, no, 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 look, look. They made me look really handsome in the picture. She says, just get Christmas cards, and you can send them to all your congregation. I'm like, yeah, I liked how I looked, so I was like, all right. And every single one of my friends made fun of me and still makes fun of me. <laughs> but you see, Jesus, I never sent them out, by the way. They're still in a box somewhere. <laughs> but Jesus is like that Photoshop software. That's the sanctification where God makes you more beautiful. And I'm not talking about the external beauty. I'm talking about the internal beauty. He shapes and reshapes and transforms your heart so that you could be the reflection of Christ to this world that is in desperate need of seeing something worth hoping in. And Paul says, look, the law, it just shows us where we have fallen. And I think there's one more verse that says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Here's the point, because I have like five more pages I can't get through today. The commandment and the law is not bad, and it is not sinful. But rather, it is sin. It is the devil who will take the law and exploit it, and it will dig deep within you. It's like a roaring lion, Peter says. It's like a roaring lion looking to see who it will devour. And so the law is good, and it is holy, and it is a representation of what God wants for us. But what happens is that sin finds a way to worm its way in so that it can deceive you and make you believe things that aren't true. And here's the best example, and maybe I'll write about it and send it out this week. Think of um, Adam and Eve in the garden. It says uh, they were alive apart from the law. So they were, it was the age of innocence in the Garden of Eden. Then it says, but the commandment came that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin revived and I died. And here's what happens. The, the, the commandment that promised life proved to be death because the serpent seized an opportunity to wedge itself between God and Adam and Eve. And it deceived them and it led to death. So the law is good. God's word is good. But the devil will use sin to get in between you and God. And every time we allow that to happen, we, we may fall into sin. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? No. It was sin working death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become more sinful beyond measure. And if you come back next week, I'm going to show you how this continues to kind of work its way into our lives. 
and we're going to look at the nature of why we sin and perhaps some ways that we can avoid some of the sins that we do. But what I want you to take away from today is that Paul doesn't think the law is bad. But he says it functions as a mirror to show you who you are and how much in need you are of God's saving grace. And when you have been encountered by that, you are free to live in such a way that reflects the honor and glory of God. Amen.